David dances for joy and for God. A reading from 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. David, dressed in a linen priestly vest, danced with all his strength before the Lord. This is how David and the entire house of Israel brought up the Lord's chest with shouts and trumpet blasts. As the Lord's chest entered David's city, Saul's daughter, Michelle, was watching from a window. She saw King David jumping and dancing before the Lord, and she lost all respect for him. The Lord's chest was brought in and put in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. Then David offered entirely burned offerings in the Lord's presence in addition to well-being sacrifices. When David finished offering the entirely burned offerings and the well-being sacrifices, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heavenly forces. He distributed the food among all the people of Israel to the whole crowd, male and female, each receiving a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake. Then all the people went back to their homes. David went home to bless his household, but Saul's daughter, Michelle, came out to meet him. How did Israel's king honor himself today, she said, by exposing himself in plain view of the female servants of his subjects like any indecent person would? David replied to Michelle, I was celebrating before the Lord who chose me over your father and his entire family and who appointed me leader over the Lord's people and over Israel, and I will celebrate before the Lord again. I may humiliate myself even more, and I may be humbled in my own eyes, but I will be honored by the female servants you are talking about. Michelle, Saul's daughter, had no children to the day she died. Here ends the third reading. Well, now present, loving God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together in this room be found pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, sisters and brothers, grace to you today and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the fourth Sunday in a series of messages from the life of David in which we are asking this essential question, what does a whole human being look like? And David's story, as it unfolds, reminds us that God takes the stuff of our lives, both the beautiful and the ugly, and uses it for holy purposes. One thing we learn from David uh, that becomes a little more clear in our text today is that what we might call the not yet can last a very long time. When David was very young, he was given a promise that one day he would be the king of Israel. One day, not yet. And the time it took between the giving of that promise and him, him actually becoming who he was meant to be was almost a quarter of a century. The not yet can last a very long time. Some of you this morning may find yourselves in a season of not yet. When will I figure out my vocation? One day, not yet. When will I find a life partner? When am I going to finally understand my parents, my children, my spouse? When will I understand myself? One day. When will I stop feeling sad or angry or scared or exhausted? One day, not yet. One thing David shows us is that we don't get to postpone our living for better days. 
He shows us what it means to be faithful in the meantime and how to live for now with setbacks and delays and promises not yet delivered. David had challenges. Look at his life. He was the youngest son who got all the dirty work. Some of you know what that's like. His brothers treated him with disrespect. He was an afterthought for the selection of king. And after defeating Goliath, he spent years fleeing from Saul who wanted to kill him. David faced difficult days, but as often happens, the hardships wind up forming him, shaping him. Along the way, he learns to deal with danger. He learns how to fight and when not to fight. He learns to rely on God and to love God's word. He learns obedience and loyalty and friendship. And I can't wonder if later in life, David looked back on those experiences with some measure of gratitude for what they had given him. Makes me think of some words Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote some 60 years ago. Following World War II, the Russian writer and historian spent eight years imprisoned in Joseph Stalin's forced labor camps. And after his release, he reflected on his imprisonment and it occurred to him that the gulag had given him a gift. He said, gradually, It was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but through every human heart. And he said later of that life-changing realization, this is why I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say, sometimes to the astonishment of those around me, bless you, prison Bless you for being in my life, for there, lying on that rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity, as we are meant to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. The long season of not yet can bring good gifts, too. As Richard Rohr says, the undoing is also part of the remaking. So last week, we saw David near En Gedi, sparing Saul's life in a cave. And when we meet up again with him today, in, in this story, 13 years have passed and much has happened. The prophet Samuel has died. And Saul, the king whom David both honored and fled, also has died. So now Saul is dead. Does David automatically become king? No. The people down in Judah anoint him as the king in the south, but one of Saul's sons gets crowned up north, and there's this seven-and-a-half-year-long civil war against David, another setback, another delay. But at last, David's wait is over, Israel's civil war comes to an end, and the people welcome him as their king, and by this time, he's almost 38 years old. His first act is to capture a Jebusite stronghold on a little mountain called Zion. To this day, we know it as Jerusalem. He builds a home there. He establishes a government. And finally, in midlife, he begins the work that he was called and made to do with his life. So it's a big moment. And there's this celebration. If ever there's time to party, this is it. 
And at the center of the celebration is the Ark of the Covenant. You heard it referred to today as the chest of God. The Ark was a big wooden box or chest plated with gold and the figure of two cherubim on top. And inside the box, the Ark, were the stone tablets God gave to Moses along with a little jar of manna for remembering and and the rod of Aaron. And the Ark of the Covenant was for Israel a symbol of God's promise and presence. For a while, it had been in the hands of the Philistines. You remember them. But now it's back in Israel, except it's being stored in somebody's barn. This will not do. David is determined to bring the defining symbol back to the center of the nation, back to the heart of the people, and he did. He he brought the ark back home. And so now it's really time to party. David pulls together a parade. He arranges for a band. There are harps and horns and tambourines and cymbals. And and he calls the Levites to, to carry the ark. And he calls all the people together and he offers a sacrifice. And when the time is right, he strikes up the band. Now, there is a time for Gregorian chant. And there's a time to get up and move with the music. Everybody in this party is clapping and shouting and singing for all they're worth. And leading the parade is David himself, high-stepping like a drum major. David dances with all his might. He dances before the Lord, whirling and jumping and lifting his hands. Was it pretty? I don't know. He was a shepherd and a warrior. You know, the Bible doesn't say if he had rhythm. What it does say is that the garment David was dancing in that day was an ephod, which was part and only part of what a priest was supposed to wear. Now, there has been some debate among biblical scholars about whether or not David was, in fact, leaping through the streets of Jerusalem in his tidy whities We don't know for sure. But even so, he leaped and he whirled, and with all his might, he danced. Was it pretty? Who can say? One thing we can say is that David here isn't asking, is this pretty? He's not thinking about the crowd or the critics or himself. He is utterly lost in love. He is wholly given over to the worship of God. After all, David is a person after God's own heart, and God is the giver of the great party who loves with abandon and gives with extravagance. And if that's who God is, then the people after God's heart know how to live with an answering passion. Eventually, we learn to stop managing ourselves and checking ourselves and holding ourselves in reserve and instead learn the great delight of losing ourselves in love. We learn, in other words, really, how to be more like children. One of my favorite moments in worship each week is when our children help to receive the offering. It's a tender and beautiful moment, I think, And every so often, 
as they're carrying the gifts of the people uh, to the altar, one of our little offering collectors can't contain herself or himself and joyfully skips up the aisle, just oblivious to the eyes of the congregation. I love that. Now, this episode from David's life isn't about dancing per se. I think it's about being alive to God. It's about learning to give back to God something deep from the heart. Something more than words and obligatory little deeds. That's why we're here on this earth. This is about our turning our love loose and not holding it so tightly or measuring it so carefully. It's about giving better gifts while we can. It's about taking greater leaps of faith while we may. It's about finding ourselves by losing ourselves. And I think it's important to notice that, that in this text, Davis, David is, is extravagant in more ways than one. He dances with God with abandon. But when the dance is over, he gets up and he feeds all the people. And what this seems to suggest, at least to me, is that there, there really is one, more than one way to do the dance. And the people who are learning one way are probably getting better at the other ways, too. David's dancing reminds me of that iconic scene, I've referenced it before here, from Dead Poets Society, in which Mr. Keating the English teacher stands before his students with a poetry textbook in his hand and commands them to rip out the introductory essay in which the author has laid out a method for grading poems on a grid. And as the sound of tearing paper fills the room, Mr. Keating cheers them on, reminding his students that poetry is not songs on American bandstand that can be rated on a scale from one to ten, but rather art that plunges the depths of the heart. He's teaching them to live with abandon. But of course, when we live that way, invariably, Someone won't like it. Mr. Keating's passion is met with criticism from a sour headmaster. Back in Jerusalem, David's critic is none other than his wife, Michael, who is decidedly not dancing that day. Michael watches the party from the window. And when David comes in all giddy and out of breath, she lights into him. Well, didn't you make a spectacle of yourself today? Didn't you flaunt yourself and expose yourself to the servant girls? Poor Michael. I think she was a Baptist. (laughs) One of the self-appointed behavior police of the world. But I want to invite you this morning to think of Michael not as some person in your life who's trying to put a kibosh on your freedom, though I know There may be those kinds of people in your life. Instead, I encourage you to think of Michael as a part of you. That that part of you that sits high in the window of your mind as a constant critic of all your inclinations to be extravagant with your love. 
Part of you maybe wants to give bigger, better gifts, but the Michael in you says, we can't afford that. Part of you wants to give your time to visit the sick or play with children, serve the poor, befriend the lonely, but the Michael in you says, we're too busy, that will make us tired. Maybe some part of you wants to get past an old grudge and give someone a second chance, but, but the Michael in you says, we're still angry and we're staying angry. Part of you maybe wants to pour out your praise to God and she says, look at yourself. You look ridiculous. David's response to Michael is worth paying attention to when confronting your internal critic. And we all have one. Do you remember what he says? He said, I'm dancing for the Lord. Which is to say, I'm not watching myself and I'm not watching the world watching me. My eyes see only God and the love of God, wild and extravagant and free, and my life is going to make that kind of answer back. I will dance before the Lord, he says. I know some of you today are struggling in some long, unwelcome season of the not yet. You're living in that tedious meantime of some grief or some spiritual pain that you hardly even know how to name. But friends, even now, the love of God is moving toward you with open arms. And so why not lean into that love and let it take you? Why not let something in you just sass the not yet and dance before God? I like to imagine Jesus dancing like David, he entered Jerusalem one day. It was a parade with people shouting and clapping and singing. And there were Michaels looking on that day who said it was all too much. But Jesus said, you know what? If they don't sing, the stones themselves are going to cry out. On this table today are the symbols of his extravagant love. Nothing held back. Christ can lead anyone to dance. And so this is his question to you and to me. Will you sit out this life watching yourself, checking yourself, holding yourself back? Or will you take my hand and live with abandon and dance with God? And so... God of every extravagance, spirit wild and free, move us today to make generous answers. Son of David, take us by the hand and lead us into joyful abandon until we are lost in love. Amen.